This is an Equity Bates Media podcast. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Equity Mines! I will say this about investing. Everything you do learn is cumulative. What I learned at 20 is you Welcome back to another episode of Equity Mates, or should I say, Hark, Warriors and Financial Conquerors. Welcome to another episode of Equity Mates, where we ride into the battlefield of investing like a Mongol horde sweeping across the plains. As always, I'm joined by my equity buddy, Ren, and who am I? Uh, Bryce, you've asked ChatGPT to translate your introduction, as you always do. I was an, a, a bit of two minds here with the whole hark. I was thought it might go down a hark the Herald, Herald Angels, Angels yeah, yeah. And then when it was when it was warriors, I was like, well, basically all of medieval history is now <laughs> yeah, in uh, well, play. actually all of history, full stop. <laughs> um, but the Mongol horde made it pretty obvious. You don't have a great grasp on Mongol history, so there's really only one emperor that you would have chosen. Genghis Khan. Correct. <laughs> nice. Well done. You are, I don't know how many we've done now, but um, ChatGPT hasn't been able to oh, so, stump you yet. So it's ChatGPT <laughs> who hasn't been able to stump you. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, um, look, that's the only question that I'm going to have to answer today because we have an expert coming into the studio soon to actually give more insightful answers than me guessing random people from history. Uh, This is our latest Ask an Advisor episode where we sit down with one of Australia's best financial advisors. We've taken questions from the Equitymates community um, from ask at equitymates.com and from the Equitymates Facebook discussion group. We've got those questions ready and we're going to put them to our advisor in the hot seat today. Uh, It's Ellie Fordham. Yes, Ellie is from Verse Wealth. She's a senior financial advisor. And we have plenty of questions coming from the community. So we're going to cover uh, life insurance, investing questions, superannuation, and then a laundry list of general stuff around family trusts, paying down hex, how to think about salary sacrificing schemes, plus a lot more we cover. We're going to cover a lot of ground. Yeah. Now, just before we get into it, an important reminder that whilst we are licensed and whilst Ellie is licensed, none of us are aware of your personal financial circumstances. 
everything we speak about, any advice you hear is general advice only, not personal advice. The content we're creating is for education purposes only. Before making a financial decision, make sure you do your own research and if you feel like you need it, seek professional financial advice. But Bryce, with that said, let's, let's, go. Uh, let's get into it. Let's do it. Ellie, welcome to Equity Mates. Thanks for having me, guys. So today we've uh, bucketed our questions into four groups that uh, it's a bit of a trend uh, each episode, but we've got, we'll start with a whole bunch of general questions that have come through from the community. Then some specifics around life insurance, which is great because I'm in the midst of that myself, and then investing in superannuation. So let's start with the general. Uh, the first question that's come in, Ellie, is around family trusts, and it's from a community member who's in their 30s, and they'd just like to know or understand what are the pros and cons with a family trust? And for those that are unaware, I guess, what is it? Yeah, that's a really good question. So I think the first thing to think about with a family trust is, um, you might have heard Gina Reinhart have a family trust, but that's not generally how it works for most people. They don't end up having a court case uh, 80 years after the family trust got set up. It's a really good entity structure for people to really own assets in. So rather than owning it, say, in your own name, you can set up this entity structure called a family trust. And then what the trust allows you to do is at the end of every financial year, distribute income to different sort of individuals and usually their family members. Now, the benefit of doing that is that some years you might make a lot of money, other years you might not make as much money. So it just gives you a level of discretion as to where you're sort of distributing that income to to ultimately save you on tax. So it can be really effective, but you know some of the, the downside to that is it is expensive to set it up. It's, it's a cost associated with setting up the, the structure, to put the trust deed in place. And then typically there's costs associated with running the trust every year. So you do have to lodge a tax return for the trust and typically do some financial statements as well. Um, so some people do choose to get an accountant to help them with that. So I've got a lot of clients that have family trusts and sometimes in the first you know, sort of five years or so, um, the tax benefit that they get from distributing the income to different family members, sometimes it actually doesn't outweigh the cost associated with setting up and running the trust. But a lot of people set up family trusts for the longer term because as their asset base continues to grow with what they've got invested in the trust, the income that they're generating is hopefully going to be higher. Um, and it also means that if they sell assets in the trust you know, in the longer term, like down the track, so it might be like 10 years down the track, you're going to have hopefully capital gains in there as well. So it also means that you've got a little bit more discretion as to where you, you know, distribute is the technical term those capital gains you know if I was setting up a family trust you know maybe I might you know distribute some of that income to uh, a sibling who's at uni who's not making the same sort of income or maybe like a parent or a lot of people use it uh, to distribute income to, to adult children so yeah it can be a really cool way to, to save on tax but there is definitely quite a few things to sort of think about when working out if that one's going to be the right one for you. So just following on from that, uh, you mentioned there that some of your clients or some people that you know set it up uh, when they're a little bit younger and uh, with the idea that it the benefits will come in the long run. Is there any reason why they wouldn't just wait and set it up when they're you know a little bit older and their families 
a little bit older as well. Like, is there any benefit to, to setting it up before you need it or before you can benefit from it? The main benefit of doing that is like, if, for example, you, you know, bought some assets in your name at the moment and all of the income is sort of taxed in your name, but in the future, you want to have that discretion to distribute the income to someone else. You need to sell the asset in your name and then buy it again in the name of the family trust. Right. So you're triggering capital gain. Yeah. Okay. Okay. Right. So it's a it's like a taxable event when you put it in the trust. Okay, that makes sense. Yeah. Technically called a change of beneficial ownership. Okay. <laughs> um, even though, like, you probably, you know, some people might buy the same asset that they just sold. It might even be on the same platform or brokerage account, but it's a, a change of name, so it causes a capital gains event. Okay. Can well, you buy your family home in a, in, a, in a family trust? Yeah, technically you can buy really anything in there. It's just that you know the tax discretion available might change depending on the ownership of a family home. But mm. your family home is capital gains free mm. and not making any income. Yeah, later down the track. Unless, unless you're knows? charging your kids' rent. Yeah, or something. charge your wife and kids' rent. <laughs> <laughs> I've had a couple of clients, uh, probably not more recently, but uh, quite a while ago, that had their family home in the trust for, for different reasons. Because the other thing about a family trust is that um, it does give like a bit of a level of asset protection. So for clients who might, and people who might have like high risk jobs where they're worried about, the risk of litigation and things like that, sometimes they get advice to set up their assets in trusts and other entity structures to give that asset protection. So maybe, Bryce, you might be worried about that, are you? No, 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 no. (laughs) Nothing wrong with running a very public media company. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway. Well, Ellie, while while we are sort of talking about, I guess, some of the habits and some of the structures of, I was going to say of wealthier clients, but I guess, you know, this trust structure could be any any type of client. But if we do pause on some of the wealthier clients that you work with, are there any particular money habits that stand out from the way that they think about money or manage money? Yeah, definitely. I think there's one really big thing and... For a lot of clients that I've seen that have grown their wealth over time, the big habit that they always keep in place over time is really having control of their cash flow. So I've met some really wealthy clients that probably still spend like they've got $20,000 to their name. I've met really wealthy clients that spend like they've got $10 million to their name and they only have $20,000 to their name. But the big key, I think, for success for, for anyone really is having control of your cash flow. And if you can get the, those really good habits in place early, they will carry through with you sort of for the rest of your life. When you, you have more wealth, like there's obviously more flexibility to how much you control your cash flow. And I think naturally people's lifestyle and, and life changes, uh, the better you're doing from a wealth perspective. But you know, generally sort of speaking, I think those clients that I've seen get themselves to really good positions have always got those habits that they continue to, to use throughout their life. Mm. Crucial, something that always comes up, getting that cash flow sorted. Now, um, we've had a couple of questions come in that we'll group together around what to do if you come into a lump sum of money or a windfall, as one of our uh, colleagues here in the office calls it. Should you win lotto or even get some money from overtime? Tax return is a good one as well. Generally, there's a there's a big range, Bryce has just given you there. Every time, everything from working overtime to winning lotto. <laughs> Look, a lump sum outside of your regular cash flow. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How um, 
how should we generally think about um, using that or, or putting that to work? I actually do have a client who ticks two of those boxes that had a windfall and got some overtime. So, <laughs> oh, I thought you, you were going to say every day. I- I thought you were going to say that one won lotto. lotto. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's big. Yeah, they did. Oh, oh wow. wow. How okay. much? Yeah, a couple of mil. Oh, nice. A couple of mil. <laughs> wow. Yeah, yeah and it wasn't in the US lotto either. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Obviously, everyone's circumstances are different and everyone has different, I guess, financial priorities. How do you approach that generally? Yeah, I mean, it is really difficult because everyone does have different financial priorities, different things happening in their life, different levels of income. So, you know, I think for us, probably the key is understanding what they want to achieve, first of all, what those priorities are, what those goals are, then working out what's going to be the best plan of attack to get them there. And we're thinking shorter term and longer term as well. So, you know, some of the things that we always sort of look at as shorter term debts, high interest debts. You know, that can often be something that's important to to think about trying to exhaust them because often, you know, particularly from a cash flow perspective, that can really be holding you back and not helping you to progress to where you want to be. So that's probably one to look at. Um, I think some of someone also raised about like hex debt as well. I got a lot of questions in May and June about hex debt. I know when I had my hex debt, I was so lucky because it was like 2% indexation. And if you go onto like the AGO website and look at the indexation of hex, it really has been super low because it's really tied to inflation. And this year it was like so much higher, a little bit higher last year and then this this year as well. I used to run the line all the time that HEX is like the cheapest form of debt that you'll ever have in your life, but I'm totally proven wrong by that now because of the indexation. <laughs> um, so, you know, that can also be like a sort of a forced repayment in a way as well because it's getting taxed on that um, when you're, you're generating income. Uh, so that's also something to consider. Um, one of the things I think the big strategies are seeing for a lot of people at the moment, though, is thinking about the cost of interest, not necessarily on HEX, but like on their home loan or their investment property loan versus what's the potential rate of return in their investment portfolio over the longer term. Balancing that up with where they're at financially, what they're looking to achieve, like you know, having money in an offset account at the moment, if your home loan interest rate is 6%, your effective risk-free rate of return is six percent after tax yeah because it's pretty attractive compared to when it was two percent yeah yeah it makes it makes your hurdle rate for investing a lot higher definitely yeah but i mean obviously that's talking shorter term also guaranteed rate of return it does make you think about we've ju- i've just bought a house congrats thank you and well we'll see but um <laughs> uh but have the offset have the offset account and now um, it's really you know making us think about even our emergency cash, like that sitting in a 5%, it's, it seems more financially a better return to actually sit in the offset because the interest is 5.84 or whatever it is. Good rate. Can you do that? Like, yeah. is there, there's no, once you no, put you money. No, you can do yeah, it. Yeah, but yeah. I think what we would then, yeah. what, I guess what you need to then do is just be very clear in your mind or on a piece of paper somewhere, what of that is like your. Can you do multiple offset accounts? Yeah, you can. Yeah. So just have a. Yeah, it depends on the bank though. Yeah. Oh, okay. So essentially, you could you just want to use it. You just want to have you maximize as much in there as possible when rates are like they are. If you if you can't get a better return elsewhere on that cash, I mean, if you think about long term interest rates, like we've been so lucky over the last, the last few years around where interest rates have been. But like I know when I first started in advice, I think interest rates on home loans were like eight percent, and you know longer term they're they're probably not going to be at two percent. I would say. Um, 
So, yeah, offset and offset can work really, really well. But I think the couple of things to keep in mind is you can have multiple offset accounts. So that can really help in terms of segmenting like emergency funds or like if you're saving money to go on a holiday, that can be really helpful. But I've got lots of clients and I think I put myself in this category as well where if there's money in the bank, I kind of want to spend it. It doesn't really work that well for me. Uh Uh-oh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. (laughs) So my money habits are a little bit different. You know, I like seeing my loan be repaid. I like having the higher repayments go into my loan. Um, It's like a forced level of saving for me. And I think that's also something that you should keep in mind when you're thinking about what's going to be the right option for you. Because for a lot of people, it's easier said than done to have that money sitting in the offset account. Now, Ellie, we've got one more to close out the general section before we move on to insurances. And this one's come through from Hayley. She'd like to know the major pros and cons of salary sacrificing schemes to cover things like cars, childcare, you know, whatever your employer might be offering. Help us understand the pros and cons. I love talking about salary packaging. (laughs) I've had heaps of clients be able to do this over time. And it's actually sort of really popular at the moment um, with a lot of my clients and I'll sort of explain why. But I think first of all, with salary sacrificing to super, um, there's a lot of technical terms in here. So, and even like I know sort of um, different people that I've worked with over time who work in the industry get this a little bit confused, but I think salary sacrificing, there's the element where you can salary sacrifice to super um, and put those contributions in, and it's sort of a pre-tax deduction that comes out of your salary or your wage. I think we're talking more about like salary sacrificing items like um, a car or childcare or other sorts of things like that. And it depends on your employer as to what you, what items you're able to salary sacrifice or salary package. So most people, if their employer allows it, can salary package things like like maybe a professional membership for your association or maybe like technology like laptops or something like that, software. And the reason why you can do that is typically if you paid for that anyway for money out of your bank account, you can get a tax deduction on it anyway. So all that packaging those items allows you to do is to do it through your salary and you're reducing your tax as soon as you do it by deducting it through your salary. So for example, I used to like salary package, my membership to my professional association uh, every month that I got paid. And then I just didn't have to worry about it, but it also helped me to reduce my tax. The main benefit is that you're getting that tax deduction straight away rather than waiting until you get around to lodging your tax return and the ATO are paying you the money, et cetera, et cetera. But I think probably the more common sort of salary packaging that people talk about is things like cars, Typically how that works is you work with a, a salary packaging provider, that probably the one that your employer wants you to work with, and you get a quote for the car. You go and work out what the running costs of the car are going to be based on how many kilometres you're doing. And then they'll work out how much is going to come out of your salary pre-tax. And that's the part that's really beneficial for you because that's where you're going to get a tax deduction. And they'll also work out a component that comes out of your salary post-tax. So you don't really get a, a tax deduction for that. The benefit of doing that is that um, if you're running a car and you're driving around and doing stuff that isn't work-related, you're still getting a little bit of a tax deduction for doing it. I remember we used to be out of salary sacrifice stock when I used to work at Woolies, which was good. <laughs> it actually turned out really That's well. cool. I didn't know you could yeah, do that at Woolies. Yeah. yeah. Not quite offered here at Equity Mates, Not unfortunately. yet. No, no. no not yet. 
Well, Ellie, let's uh, let's turn to the second category of uh, topics, uh, which was insurance and in particular life insurance. And I am a little bit cynical of how this uh, made the cut because Bryce did tell me earlier this week that he was looking at life insurance. So um, we do have some questions here, but I think he's put it uh, up in the running order just because he <laughs> has some questions. Um, so I think that there's a general question, then we have a specific one that's come through from em- Emma, but I might ask the general one first, uh, which is, uh, what's the difference when you're buying life insurance uh, as part of your super fund in super and then buying life insurance outside of super, just going to ins- an insurer and doing it that way? Main difference really is sort of like the terms and conditions of the policies that you put in place. So when you buy insurance through your super or you get your super fund to do it, um, generally you don't go through a process of confirming your medical conditions and your your personal history. The the super fund really isn't like understanding your risk um, associated with having that policy. So the, the best way I describe it to clients is if you bought a house like Bryce did and all of the wall on one side of the house is missing, probably not going to get insurance for the house because it's damaged. And it's the same if you get life insurance. You know, if you've had a a medical event or a medical history, like for example, if you've had a heart attack, probably going to be less insurers that want to give you uh, cover. Whereas when you have it through super, they don't go through that process. So they just give it sort of to everyone. But it just means the conditions around when they pay out a claim are slightly different. And it's the discretion of the super fund to change those conditions over time. Whereas if you went and got a policy outside with another sort of provider, you will have to go through that what they call underwriting process of working out what your risk is to the insurance company and then they'll calculate the premium based on that, on your occupation and how much cover you want to get. The big benefit is that you know what you're covered for, you know specifically what the conditions are of the policy and once it's set up, it's locked in place, it can't really change over time. So we've got a specific one that's coming from Emma and uh, her and her husband are in their mid-30s and and thinking about uh, life insurance. They have a small amount of cover through their superannuation, um, but her husband has no cover and she wants to know where do they even start with the process? Um, How much do they need to consider? How much should they insure themselves for? Uh, Are there any red flags to think about when looking at insurers? I think that's a good one. So yeah, just kind of talk us through that process. It is really hard to work out where to start. Definitely acknowledge that. I think the number of advisors that are providing life insurance advice is reducing as well, which sucks. Why is that? So uh, the industry has gone through a lot of regulation over time, don't need to bore anyone. There was a Royal Commission, you know, that had a pretty big impact on the industry. I think when I started out in advice, like you can go and get a life insurance plan and pay like $500 for it. Um, I don't think anyone, I'm confident, no one would be able to give you a life insurance plan these days and and it costs $500. Um, so I think advisors are just moving their business. The regulation has changed. It meant that if you're just providing life insurance advice on, it own, on its own, it's a little bit more difficult to do that. But there are still like lots of great resources out there to kickstart sort of identifying what level of cover you need. I think that's the first part. So a lot of super funds will have some calculators on their website. Money Smart also have a couple of calculators. Um, they're not all perfect. And I think, the big one with calculating how much cover you need is everyone makes different assumptions. 
it's really about making sure those assumptions fit where you're at now, what stage of life you're in, um, and you know, probably just thinking through if something you don't really want to happen does happen, what are you prepared to sort of consider at that point in time? So that's the big one. It's working out how much you need. The second part is then working out where to get it. So, of course, if, you know, the, the first port of call for a lot of people is a super fund, definitely good resource. I think going and having a chat to an advisor, though, and getting some good insurance cover is uh, really important because those policies are going to be the ones that more than likely you go through that, that underwriting process that I was talking about. So you're going to have um, some good quality policies in place and they'll be able to have a look at all the different companies that are sort of out in the market and work out what's going to be the right insurer for you, for your occupation, for your medical history, uh, et cetera. Because there's, there's some insurers that, you know, love working with tradies and there's some insurers that, you know, probably prefer like white-collar professionals to insure. So that's probably um, an important distinction to consider. I think insurance is a funny one because everyone has this conception that you get an insurance policy and then they're never going to pay your claim. <laughs> yeah. I, I was actually shocked. Like after the Royal Commission, I was talking to someone that worked in an insurance company. I was like, oh, you guys never pay out a claim. And they're like, that's not true. They actually publish how much they, um, how many claims they pay out, the percentage of claims that get made that they pay out. So um, I don't think you need to sort of be concerned about that so much. But um, when setting up life insurance, you should just make sure that whoever you're working with, they actually really explain the policy to you. Because if you do make a claim in the future, you just want to make sure that you're in the right position, you've got the right level of cover based on your assumptions at that point in time. And um, you're actually going to receive uh, the amount that you need at that point in time. Well, um, uh, you mentioned that Money Smart has a life insurance calculator. I have just Googled it and will include the link to the Money Smart life insurance calculator in the show notes so people can calculate how much they need. Uh, I just put my circumstances in there and Money Smart told me I might not need life insurance. So <laughs> my, my life, obviously not that valuable to uh, ASIC at the moment. You know, if I get married and have kids, I'm sure they'll give me a number. Uh, anyway, on that somewhat uh, dour note, uh, let's take a quick break here, Ellie. And then on the other side, we want to turn to the questions that we got around investing and also questions around superannuation. Uh, but we'll take a quick break here. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass!" So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. All right, welcome back to Equity Mates. Uh, we are doing one of our favorite types of episodes, an Ask an Advisor episode. We're joined uh, by Ellie Fordham. Ellie, we've covered a lot so far today. We've covered uh, a bunch of general questions. We've spoken about insurance, but as is always the case, when we go out to the Equity Mates community uh, and, and tell them that we're doing an episode with a financial advisor, 
we get a flood of questions around investing and we get a flood of questions around starting investing. So uh, we'll start at the very beginning with a very general question. <laughs> so general. <laughs> so general. <laughs> How can I start investing? And I think, you know, the context here is even for people who listen to this podcast, who are part of our Facebook discussion group, you know, it's still quite a daunting thing, a lot of jargon. So what's the easiest first step to take to start investing? Could I just say, listen to Equity Mates? Uh, nice. <laughs> yeah. yeah, you should. Although if people are listening to this episode, I think they've already ticked that box. <laughs> uh, big one, I think, is first of all, do your research. Everyone's level of research is going to be different, what they need to feel confidence to make any decision in life. But investing is starting investing is a huge step to take, to take the plunge to do that. So you've got to do the research to know what you're going to do. You've got to understand why you're investing though, to start with. If you're happy to invest because you want to grow your wealth longer term or there's a particular reason why you want to invest, make sure you've really got that front of mind before you take the plunge. Um, I think secondly, then you need to work out what you want to invest into. So it's going to really depend on how much money you've got, your own personal sort of circumstances. Some people choosing shares, some people are choosing property, some people happen to have their money in the bank. That's different for everyone. So work out what you want to invest into. That's easier said than done. There's so much behind that. Um, but Obviously, using, um, like, for example, Equity Mates podcast, you're going to get a good understanding of, of something to consider. But I think the last part is once you work out what you're going to invest into, really confirm or have clarity on the time frame that you're investing for because investing is not a short-term game. It is really long-term and you need to make sure that if you are going to be putting money away that you're really thinking that you can't touch it for a long period of time. You know, typically, we're saying seven to 10 years. And I think the last thing is to just start because once you start, you know, if you put aside an amount that you're willing to invest to kick things off, once you sort of, you know, sort of have runs on the board, so to speak, it does make your investing experience much easier. I think with a lot of my clients, I often start out with an amount that they're willing to invest initially. And then as their confidence in investing builds over time, they're more than happy to, to move more into their investment portfolios and keep, keep that growing. Yeah. Yeah. I definitely think that's the case. Once you build confidence, your idea of risk starts to, to change a little bit. Yeah. Absolutely. And we're so lucky that there's all these micro investing platforms now to actually start with smaller amounts. You know, when I started an advice a while ago, there was none of these around. If you wanted to buy shares, you had to save up $500 plus brokerage to put the trade on. If I remember when I was like 17, saving up for my first trade. And now you can put like 10 bucks in an ETF on a micro investing platform. It's, it's a great way to get started. It's come a long way in the last even five years since Alec and I really started getting into it. So there is no... There's no excuse from an accessibility point of view, at least. It's, um, it's good to see. Speaking of micro-investing, this one's coming from Eugene. He started investing on a micro-investing app, but would like to now move towards chess-sponsored. He wants to know if he should sell and reinvest into the same ETF or just start afresh, keep the existing micro-investing and, and start on another broker? I think the main consideration to think about here is something we were talking about earlier, where if you move um, from one platform to another, so move from micro-investing to chess sponsorship, you're probably going to have to sell the asset and then rebuy it, and you might have capital gains, which we were talking about earlier. 
Mm. So that's probably going to be the biggest consideration to think about whether that's the right move or not. And that's probably like one of the only downsides about micro investing is that most of the time you can't transfer the ETF you've bought across to the chess sponsorship. Mm. Um, so that would probably be for me one of the biggest factors to consider before doing that. Um, because aside from that, the only other thing to consider is like the cost associated with retaining it in the micro investing platform or having it on, on the chess sponsorship. Sometimes the cost benefit isn't going to be significantly different um, by retaining it on the micro platform. Mm. Yeah, I, I would say when you're thinking about costs, um, th some of the micro investing platforms don't charge monthly fees. So you're just paying whatever the ETF uh, management fee is. Um, some of them do. And so, you know, if you've got a small amount of money invested on a micro investing app and they're charging you, you know, $4.50 a month fees on top of what you pay for the ETF, that adds up over time. As, and, you know, as a percentage of a small amount invested, it matters. Yeah, it's, it is huge. I agree. I was doing this analysis the other day for my niece and I was looking at it like if she had it for 18 years in the micro-investing platform, it was, it was going to be huge. So that's I absolutely agree. A, a massive consideration. Um, we, we got a question around dividend uh, investing. I, I feel like it's really sort of come into the fore of a lot of people's, I guess, investing universe because growth stocks had a really tough 2022 um, so people were looking at other alternatives and then just because, you know, we, we seem to be in a, an environment that's focused on income, bond yields are up, uh, we, we can, we're getting income from our savings accounts for the first time in a decade almost. And so people are thinking about income. So I guess the question is for people who are younger in that accumulation phase, mid twenties, early thirties, like Bryce and I, or Bryce almost mid-30s. Oh, um, come on. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I guess the question is, is dividend investing worth it? Me too, Bryce. It's all good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I feel like everyone's talking about dividend investing. Like I've had a heap of people, of friends of mine who aren't in the industry talking about it lately too. Um, and I really think it comes back to like, what's your investment philosophy? Because when you are investing, you've got a longer term strategy typically of what you're thinking about. And that investment strategy really comes back to what you're looking to achieve with those assets in the longer term. So typically for, you know, I know for myself, like I'm not really looking to generate income from my investments at the moment. I'm looking for capital growth in the longer term. So if I'm thinking in that regard, I'm thinking about whether a stock that's paying a really good dividend is actually worthwhile having at the moment or whether I'd be better off focusing my investment strategy and continuing my investment philosophy, which is more around having assets and building growth over the longer term. For a lot of older people who've been investing longer term, you know, I'm talking like 60s, 70s, etc. A lot of their assets were really like blue chip stocks that were generating really good dividends over longer term. But that's because they're relying on that income. If you're not relying on the income, then you're really just looking for assets that get you the best return. And I think it's important to stress after tax return because even if you're taking that dividend income and you know reinvesting it straight back into the share market, it's still adds to your taxable income whereas capital gains you don't you don't pay tax until you sell that's right and you know a lot of people and again i'm not trying to pick on them but like probably older people get really tied up around franking credits and how that's beneficial and when you're paying low levels of tax it can be quite beneficial um even when you're paying high levels of tax it can be but if you're after tax return for an aussie share is 
5%, but you could have that same money invested in another stock elsewhere that's getting you above that return and you're not paying any tax on it because it's not generating any income, then it's a bit of a no-brainer. So the next one has come in from Cass and she would like to know, is it beneficial or not so beneficial to invest in an individual company as well as investing in an ETF that holds that company? Ooh, good question. <laughs> I don't see it too often. I guess probably the main reason why you would hold an individual stock as well as holding an ETF with that stock in it is if you're really looking to get more exposure to that particular asset or sector. You know, some people would use a term of that sort of being like a satellite investment to an extent to, to take on more of that risk and get that exposure. Um, so it probably really comes back to whether that's the asset that you want to have in your portfolio to, to generate that sort of return in the longer term. But if you're looking for a more diverse investment strategy, um, then usually you probably just look to, to your ETFs. Mm. And then finally, to close out investing, this one has come through. Ellie, can you explain the six-year tax rule when owning an investment property? That's a, it's a good one. So if you do own your home, so Bryce, you might move out of your house in 12 months' time and rent it out. You could go and live somewhere else and rent out your home that was your former place of residence. And then you might rent it out for five years and then sell that property. And the main benefit of this six-year rule is that you'll uh, that property will be exempt from capital gains tax. Because it was a owner-occupied first. Correct. So it has to be owner-occupied first. You have to live in it. And then you've basically got six years. It doesn't have to be all in one period. It can be broken up. So you might rent it out for two years and move back in and rent it out again, but you've got a six-year exemption um, and then you can the property can be exempt from capital gains tax. Nice. Fascinating. I did have a client do this in the past and it was really beneficial for her situation. Mm, I bet. Wow. Uh, well, Ellie, we're almost out of time, but we do just want to touch on uh, super a little bit. We got one question from Ariana that we thought was worth uh, getting in at the back end of the episode. Most of us grew up in a world where you had uh, your choice of super was really you choose the fund and then it was uh, aggressive or growth, uh, moderate or conservative. And, and that's that's about it. But now we're seeing more and more options come to market where you can have more control without going all the way to a self-managed super fund. Um, you know, I think uh, CBUS have something, Australian Super give you something, Superhero, the broker, has a platform where you can make some more choices. How would you approach that decision, moving from a super fund with pre-mixed options to more of a self-managed, self-directed super arrangement? A little bit like uh, getting started with investing, you know, and really, first of all, clarifying what the purpose is of investing your super. You know, for us, you know, maybe Bryce and I, we can access our super a little bit before uh, you can, Alec. But, you know, we've got a really long. Oh, you're not helping my cause here. <laughs> uh, we've got a really long-term investment time frame, though. You know, in a context like. To at the moment, the law around super is when you can access it. Typically, it's going to be 60, might be changed by the time we get there. So, we've got plenty of time to invest. So, if you're applying those sort of fundamentals to your own personal investment strategy, there's no reason why you can't apply a similar sort of investment strategy with your super. So, 
I think it's great. Again, there's so much more available on the market for you to, to consider with your super. Um, the benefit of the pre-mixed options are that it's sort of a little bit set and forget. You don't have to do the heavy lifting. But once you do the heavy lifting inside your super fund, you work out your strategy, you work out what you're going to be invested into. It is also a sort of could be a set and forget strategy if, if you wanted it to and really align your personal investment strategy with your, your super strategy and have similar sorts of investments in there. So I don't think there's any like detriment to either. It's just probably a matter of whether you want to take that control yourself. And I know it's important for a lot of people. The other big thing about sort of taking control of your own investment strategy through super is you're going to have a lot more transparency. And that's also important for a lot of people. So yeah, I think they're they're great options that are available. And the other thing that I've noticed uh, over the last couple of years as well is that more and more super funds have got more high growth orientated investment options that are coming out, which, you know, in the past have tended to be more balanced and probably a little bit more conservative, probably market a little bit more to pre-retirees. So even like in that pre-mix space, there's there's more and more coming out there too, which is cool. Well, Ellie, we have got through all of the questions from our community. So thank you to everyone who sent them in. If you'd like to contribute to next month's Ask an Advisor, send us a question at ask at equitymates.com. And if Ellie, if, uh, if anyone is interested in reaching out to you or finding more information, uh, what's the best place for them to, to uh, get in contact? Best place is to go to our website, uh, versewealth.com.au and you can book in an introductory chat with myself or any of our Verse advisors. Awesome. Well, we'll put that link in the show notes along with the Money Smart calculator if you are looking to find out how much you should be covering yourself for life insurance. Uh, interesting to see that Ren has zero next to his name for life insurance. <laughs> <laughs> Something new we learned today. But Ellie, thank you so much. We do appreciate you taking the time to answer all of the questions that we had. Uh, I learned a lot. I'm sure there are many people in the community that also got a lot out of this episode as well. So uh, thank you very much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me again, guys. You have been listening to an Equitymates Media production. In the spirit of reconciliation, Equitymates Media acknowledges the traditional custodians of country throughout Australia and their connections to land, sea and community. We pay our respects to their elders past and present and extend that respect to all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples today. This podcast is intended for education and entertainment purposes. Any advice is general advice only and has not taken into account your personal financial circumstances, needs or objectives. Before acting on general advice, you should consider if it is relevant to your needs and read the relevant product disclosure statement. And if you're unsure, please speak to a financial professional. The hosts of this podcast and their guests may have positions in the companies mentioned. Equitymates Media operates under an Australian Financial Services Licence 540697.